So that's really important. Now, this video is a bit of a, okay, it's a comedy sketch, okay? So it's not, don't take these marriage tips seriously, okay? They're, they're tongue-in-cheek, okay? Just in case you start halfway through, you kind of go, I don't like where this sermon's going. Right? It's tongue-in-cheek, and you'll get the idea behind it now, okay? So. Hopefully, come on. Hold on, do you want to just stop that and start it again? It's out of sync. Wanna start sync. Looks like one of those bad kung fu movies where it's all kinda it's all kinda coming a wee bit. Oh, it's just Is that just the video now? Is that is that how it is? You know what? It's really not worth it. It's really not worth it. Okay, so so don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> don't really. It, it's it's. Uh, we'll try and get that fixed up or at some point. But uh, basically, you know, these guys say, you know, always try and finish your wife's sentences because it lets her know uh, that she's predictable. You know. Um, or, you know, at all points, remind everyone how much this holiday is costing you. Th- these kinds of things. Of course, that's not how it, it should be. That's not how it should be at all. Um, I'm glad you did come back tonight after this morning, because when we talk about marriages, when we talk about intimacy in our marriages, sometimes people get a wee bit nervous they, they start to think, well, that's, this isn't appropriate. We, sh- we shouldn't be talking about these things. But the truth is that when we look at Scripture, when we look at the importance of cultivating intimacy in our marriages, we see that there's plenty of Scripture dedicated to this topic, which tells me that while some may not be keen to talk about it, God is keen for us to listen to it, or at least certainly listen to Him talk about it. I think that just because... We are Christians. This idea that we should be exempt from marital problems, that um, we should be above having to talk about these things or working up, um, talking about problems or admitting that we have problems. For, I think sometimes in Christian circles, there's almost like there's a shame attached to it. And yet that should not be the case. Marriage is hard for everyone. Everyone has these ups and downs and have to work on our marriages and work on our ability to grow together and glorify God together. Living in such close quarters with someone who is not perfect, when you yourself are not perfect, it will create difficulties at times. It will cause problems from time to time because if you're not perfect and they're not perfect, then it's going to be an imperfect situation. The truth is, is that we, because we are Christians, it is because then we take these things seriously. Because we are saved, we take these things seriously, and we need to look at them and be equipped to fight for our marriages and to train up our young people and our children to fight for their marriages. It's crucial 
that those who are dating, those who are engaged, hear these things from the pulpit before they have to hear them from a marriage counselor. And it's important that those who are married keep a close eye on these things and keep fighting and refuse to accept slipping standards as you set for each other to be the norm or just to be acceptable and just how things go. It should not be. Again, this is a, a, let me have my disclaimer. This, I am not here to put myself or my marriage up as an example. Um, Ruth and I, as I said this morning, we're married 10 years this year. So I'm doing something good or she is far more patient than what she's letting on. Um, and I, because I've known what I've been speaking on from about Monday or Tuesday, um, she's been spoiled rotten this week because I, I have this picture in my head of at some point during the sermon, she'll go, he's bluffing, you know, or just going, lies, you know. So um, I've had to very much be careful that I practice what I preach this week. Um, but tomorrow's a new day. I mean, I mean, uh, <laughs> um, the truth is, though, that the concept of a happily ever after is one that we get from Hollywood movies and fairy tales. Those are, when the, those are the stories that finish, and they lived happily ever after. But it's funny that those are the movies that always finish just as they are getting married. I would love to see just what happens in the months after that wedding. The struggle according to the fairy tales, the struggle according to the movies is to convince someone else to be at the bottom of the aisle whenever you get there and to say their vows and you sail off into the sunset. It's nonsense. It is. It's nonsense. That's the biggest lie going. The truth is everything up to the wedding day is the easy part. But two lives becoming one life, two sets of dreams becoming one, two sets of personalities, two sets of desires, two sets of ideas, two sets of characteristics coming together to form one that can not only encourage one another and build each other up and flourish and find deep joy, but maybe even go on to raise children and serve in the church. That is the hard bit. That is the hard bit. And that's why those who go on and, and marry and have long marriages, we should be celebrating them. We should be listening to what they say and learning from them because they have so much insight. The truth is marriages can be happy. They can be filled with love and laughter. Never underestimate the power of laughter in a marriage, being able to laugh together. But trouble begins when a couple stops enjoying their marriages and they begin just to endure their relationship. I could stand up and say, well, Ruth isn't the girl I married. She'd be the first one to say, Jeff, you're not exactly the guy I married either. This was not here. There was more stuff here. But if we apply the things that we spoke about this morning, here's what I would say. Oh, Jeff, you're not the guy I married. Yes but she is the girl that I promised before God to love and to cherish and to build up and to treasure and to protect in sickness and in health for richer or poor, I underlined the word poor, till death us do part in Larn or Newton Arts, which feels for better or worse. I mean, <laughs> I'll fix my eyes on her. I'll fix my enjoyment in her 
none other girls, none other illusions or fantasies of what a relationship with someone else might look like or in previous rose-tinted memories of what I think it was, used to be like, but for who she is now. And I will seek God's help in doing that by being the godliest man that I can be, the godliest husband that I can be, covenant, contentment, commitment. That was the headings that we used this morning. Now, here's the thing, folks, as we lay the groundwork now for, for tonight. The truth of the matter is that if you're a miserable grump before you get married, you're still going to be a miserable grump when you get married, okay? Getting married isn't going to fix that. If you're a happy, generous person before you get married, you're going to carry that through into your marriage. Be very slow to point fingers to demand that your spouse be the one to change. They make terrible decisions. Well, marrying you was one of them. So be slow to criticize besides. You married them. The signs were there. You committed to this. Now again, let me also say, there are circumstances under which where divorce is not only necessary, but in rare occasions it is preferable. Society would um, tell us that uh, it is often preferable, but that's not how Scripture tells us. In fact, it is a lot more rare uh, and unique circumstances than really what we would maybe allow. But sometimes you are dragged through a divorce that you did not want to go through, that you did not want, that you did not sign up for, but the other person has grown so far away or is being so captivated by someone else or so far away from God that they insist on this course of actions. And sometimes this happens. And I don't want to kick people while they are down tonight. My focus is for those who plan to marry, for those who are married, fight for that intimacy in your marriage. Fight for it. Work hard for it. Set time aside to fight for that intimacy. It isn't just going to stay there by itself because by our habits, we get dragged away from each other. There's a husband who had a health issue, major health issue. And so he went to a doctor. His doctor ran a series of tests, and he went to the doctor's office with his wife. And uh, the wife was in the waiting room, and he went to go and get himself dressed again after the, uh, the tests. And the doctor looked at the results and called his wife in and says, look, listen, um, uh, there's bad news, and I'm going to have to tell your husband this, but I want to explain it to you first while he's getting ready. Madam, your husband is very sick, and if you don't do these things for him, he will die. So, oh, oh, doctor, that's, that's terrible. Tell me, what, what do I need to do? I, I'll do anything, okay? Well, you're going to need to, to fix him three cooked meals every day and give him a full-body massage twice a week and have intimate relations with your husband regularly. She left the office and went into the waiting room. The husband was waiting and said, Darling, you look so pale. What did the doctor say? And she says, He said you're going to die. <laughs> We're going to Proverbs 5 tonight. And if you want to put your finger under the Song of Solomon as well, that would be great. Solomon wrote over 3,000 Proverbs. The Bible gives us about 513 of them. So we, we've got the, the cherry-picked best ones. He also wrote about 3,000 songs. Uh, sorry, over 1,000 songs. 1,005 1, songs. And so we're going to look at a couple of Proverbs and, and songs that he wrote. Solomon, of course, was royalty. He was the son of David and was uh, the richest 
uh, most successful king in Israel's history. He was a king's kid. He grew up with anything and everything he wanted. And to my mind, he was a spoiled child. He was a spoiled child. That's, that's kind of how I see him. He could have had anything he wanted, and so often he went for it. He got curious about life. And so he got singers, male and female, and gardens and animals. The man had his own zoo. I mean, you can't tell me that you're not spoiled when you have your own zoo. He had a lot of women as well. Anyone tell me how many wives he had? 700. 700 wives and 300 porcupines. I mean, <laughs> concubines. I was going to put a picture of a concub- uh, uh, porcupine up there and see if anyone noticed, but a thousand women. The man had a thousand women in his life. Makes you wonder if he really was all that wise. But he was all that wise. Scripture tells us, 1 Kings 4 says, he asked God for wisdom and God gave him wisdom and very great insight and understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. That's Scripture. He was the wisest man. Now, the book of Proverbs gives us insight into living well. And Solomon, the the Song of Solomon, gives us an insight into uh, a marriage between Solomon and we assume his first bride, the Shulamite, um, his bride and Solomon. Uh, They made, many people will think that the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs is like his best hit, his number one. Uh, um, of all the songs that he wrote. That's why it's called The Song of Songs, or The Song of Solomon. Uh, And it was written to his first wife before he got the other 699. This is his first wife. And this is then marriage as God intended it to be. And so as we go through this, there's something I want you to notice in Proverbs 5. Uh, This was the verse that we looked at this morning. We talked about rejoicing in the wife of your youth, that, that, that vow, that commitment, that covenant you made in your youth. Just because time has passed, God still expects us to keep our covenant, to be men and women of our word. But this evening, I've underlined the word rejoice. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Not tolerate, not endure, not try to train or or mold her into your expectation of a wife, but rejoice in the person that she is. Rejoice in her. So tonight I want to give you four pillars that we should look to put into place to enjoy and rejoice in our marriages. Number one, enjoy their company. Now the idea here is, and um, that's, that's quite small, but um, we'll, we'll get there. The next few verses make it clear, and, and it's about the enjoyment of, of a physical love, but we'll, we'll get to that. The general sense here is that you love being with the person that you're committed to. You love being with them, and it's out of that intimacy that springs out of harmony in a marriage. You love being with them. Uh, when, when couples are dating, this isn't usually a problem, right? They, they love spending time together. They can be the only people in the room, even though there's lots of other people in the room, if you know what I mean. And sometimes it makes everyone else a wee bit awkward. It's like, oh, guys, you know, these have, these have, these have to, they have but they're the only people in the room. They're captivated with each other. And it's a beautiful thing, you know, if you're one of those two people. They enjoy spending time with each other, and that's a good thing. I remember when Ruth and I were dating, I could have woken up in Balamina at 6 a.m. and headed down to Bible college for a day's worth of classes, more or less, 
uh, spent a shift in Belfast working uh, into the uh, evening, maybe nine o'clock, half nine, ten. And then I could have finished off by driving them to Larne uh, just to spend an hour or two with Ruth and or maybe longer. And it's the early hours of the morning when I'm getting back home only to repeat the same thing again. I lived in my car and nothing was close, uh, nothing was close to me. No church, no work, no college, no Ruth. But I never disliked driving to Larne. And not many people can say that about Larne. But I didn't care about the drive. The, the trick comes later on in the relationship, still wanting to be together, maintaining that friendship, cultivating the companionship, m- nurturing that relationship, the withness, togetherness, wanting to spend time. Now, Song of Solomon, this is a bride speaking to her husband. This is a husband then speaking back to his bride. And the book is about the courtship, the betrothal, the marriage, the wedding, and the unfolding nature of the wedding or the marriage. And this is the early part. Look at verse 2 of Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. Tell me, uh, verse 7, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companion? Verse 7 is basically saying, why should I have to fight so hard for you like a prostitute trying to solicit company? Why should I have to act like a working girl to get your attention? You should want to be with me. Here in the verse, couple of verses, she's saying, I, I love you so much. Your name is oil poured out, poured out perfume. I, I love your character. I love your personality. That's one of the first things that, that, that she says attracted her to her husband. I love your personality. And that's so important in a relationship. Uh, physical attraction, you know, oh, hey, you're good looking. Yeah, that's good. That, that's a spark. It's not going to last very long, though, if, if they're thick as mud or if you find them the most boring or most irritating person in the world. It's never going to last. So to say, I love your person, I love your character, that's amazing because beauty is passing, but personality lasts forever. And so they're attracted to each other because of who they are. She wants to be with him. And in verse 7, she wants to be close to him but doesn't want to chase after him like, so, like a working girl would have to do. But that desire of wanting to be together is there. Okay, now, so get this. They're at the beginning of their relationship. It's like they're starting to hang out. They're, they're curtain, as they would say in Balamina. Um, they want to be together. This longing to be together doesn't continue in, in exactly the same way, though. Because when you get to chapter 5 and 6, there, there's an argument. There's a conflict in, the, in it. And chapter 5 and 6 is about conflict resolution in a marriage which is 25% of the book, which is interesting about a love song, that a quarter of it is given over to conflict resolution. It's interesting. But as you go through those chapters, even though they're arguing, even though there's tension, they still want to be with each other. They're still chasing after each other. They want to be together, not because of hormones, but because of commitment. Their relationship is more mature at this point. There is still a longing to be together, but it's at a different level. So just think about that. 
Just think about that. In every relationship of marriage, the thrill of discovery wears off rather quickly. You know, once you, know, you see them without their makeup and says, oh, so that's what you sound like when you sleep. Do you always have so much drool coming out? Wow, you snore. The cute little idiosyncrasies that charmed you so much in the early days are now super annoying. That's why uh, one of the commentators I was reading quoted Benjamin Franklin. He said, keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. It's good advice. So maximize the time that you can spend with each other. Simple things, date nights, phone calls, texting, not, not while you're driving, but texting, kind of just talking to each other throughout the day as you can. In fact, make a, can I make a suggestion? If you have a date night, forget about the movie. So, you know, sometimes, if, unless you really want to see it, but you know, sometimes it's okay to just forget about the movie. Forget about the restaurant. Just sit with each other and talk about something. I know guys don't like this because when his wife says, Honey, do you have a few minutes? I want to discuss something with you. I get cold shivers. Spidey sense goes off saying, oh, something's bad about to happen. And I start looking around. Oh, did, I, did I empty the dishwasher? So, 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 what did I do? But if you get past that and you learn to laugh and you learn to talk, and you learn to discover new things together, it becomes very, very helpful. This is togetherness, withness. Withness is a good witness. Learning to be with one another, wanting to be with one another, it speaks volumes to the people around you. Eyes that say, I missed you. Glances that say, I care. Handholds that let me know that you're there. Hugs that say, thank you for being here. Kisses that gently want the other person. Love that says, I'll be here tomorrow and every day and every day and every day after that. That's enjoying one another's company. I know life is busy and you don't always get all the time that you want all the time, but little things during the day make a big difference. That's the first pillar. Here's the second pillar. Enjoy each other emotionally. Enjoy each other emotionally. You and your spouse are different emotionally. There will be things that you will see differently, react to differently, and ever thought that that's a strength, though, not a weakness. I think very theologically about things. I tend to be kind of very sort of methodical and says, well, the Bible says, therefore, this is what it is. Um... And I very much kind of try and think of things as black and white. I try and see things from people's different point of view. I try and think it through. Right, okay, boom, boom, boom. And I like to try and get things very clear. Thank the Lord for Ruth, who will turn around and say, yeah, but you're not going to say that to them, are you? He says, well, what do you mean? They're wrong because of blah, 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 blah. He says, yeah, but if you said that to me, I'd slap you. So I should say it a different way. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. So I've not been slapped in my entire time as pastor here. And I have my wife to thank for that. Proverbs 5.18, rejoice. 
in the wife of your youth. But it's an emotional word, rejoice. Rejoice, it's an emotional word, rejoice. It means be, to brighten or to gladden or to make joyful. Solomon also in Ecclesiastes 9, live joyfully with your, the wife whom you love all the days of your life. Live joyfully. Many people don't live joyfully. They live routinely. They live habitually, insipidly, enduringly, grimacingly. Can you enjoy the emotional different reactions that you have and the differences that you have? How you react differently to things? There's two things that make a miserable marriage, okay? Man and woman. We're not perfect. People are people. So how do you enjoy marriage? Okay, here's how I, at least I think is a good idea. Hard work. Hard work. There's, there's no other way. There's no shortcut to it. If you've been married any length of time, you know what I'm saying is true. Hard work. You don't have a good marriage just because you decided that you have a good marriage or someone else told you that you had a good marriage. You don't have a good marriage just because you've got pictures of fancy holidays and a nice car. That's building a house, but God wants us to build a home. And those are very different things. A house is built out of physical materials. A home is built on strong relationships. So balancing the checkbook, it takes hard work. Getting fit takes work, I'm, I'm told. Losing weight takes work, I'm told. Tidying the garage takes work. Maintaining your garden takes work. Building a marriage that lasts takes work. And two things will help here, okay? Men, men by their nature neglect their wives, okay? That, that's just how it is. By our nature, we neglect our wives. We are orientated to work. We are project-orientated, most of us. So our wife tries to tell us that she has a problem, what do we do? Okay, love, here's how you fix it. Right? It's like, no, no, but, but listen, I want to be heard. I want to be vent. I want to talk. No, no, listen, don't, don't worry about that. We can skip over that, but let's just get to how we fix this, right? Here we go. You say this, you do this. You... We neglect. We neglect. Women, on the other hand, work differently. They're inclined to nag their husbands. So let me speak first of all to husbands and then to the wives based on those tendencies. Number one, husbands, focus. Focus. Focus on your wife. Watch your focus. Find out what she needs and focus on that. If she needs to be heard, then don't try to fix the problem. Hear her because that's what she really needs. Uh, turn to the Song of Solomon again. Chapter 1, look at the first few verses. Solomon speaking. Listen to the poetic words of his bride. Um, uh, verse 9, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Isn't that romantic? I love you like my horse. Now, please don't misinterpret this. He's not saying, I love you, horse face, or anything like that. Solomon loved his horses. He loved his horses, and he loved the thoroughbreds, and he loved the pharaoh. The pharaoh had the greatest, most beautiful horses, and he says, you're, you're, you're like a prized possession. There's nothing that compares to you. You are the creme de la creme. You're a pharaoh's horse. 
Now, he's speaking in metaphors that he understands, that means a lot to him. So his wife will, or his, his fiance will understand. Wow, I mean, that, that, that's a big deal to him. In fact, let me just say, man, if you treat, if you have enough horse sense um, to treat your wife like a thoroughbred, she'll not turn into an old nag. Just saying. Love her like Solomon did. <laughs> I won't take a wee bit longer to land there, but we got there. <laughs> okay, good. good. Love her like Solomon did. You look like a filly, a, a, a mare among furniture. Uh, verse 15, Solomon speaks, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. So you're going, okay, so first of all, I'm a horse face, and now I'm, I'm, I'm bird eye. That's it. But no, here's something really interesting about dove's eyes. A dove can only focus on one thing at a time. A dove can only focus on one thing at a time. And so it's a peculiar thing. But what he's really saying is, sweetheart, you are so fair. And I realize that you have eyes for me only. And I love that. It excites me. I am amazed that you have only got eyes for me. And I've got eyes for you only. And I'm focusing on wanting you and meeting your needs. And I want to prove that to you. That's what there's something when you've got eyes like dove. It says, I'm only focused on you. You're only focused on me. Uh, Solomon 2, 14. It's the same metaphor. Oh, my dove, he says to her, in the cleft of the rocks, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. So this idea of, of uh, a coastline and the doves needing to be coaxed out from the, from the, fa- the cliff faces. Now, why does, why does a dove need to get coaxed out? Because there's birds of prey. They come out from the shelter of the rocks. They come out into the open air. They are exposed. They are vulnerable. So this speaks of a husband when his wife, or well, I suppose technically fiance at this point, whenever this, the woman that he loves is shut down emotionally and he's trying to bring her out to deal with it, to face up to the dangers and to come. He's focused. He's not neglecting. He's focused on her. So because men have a tendency to neglect our wives by trying to just power on through to get to the result, watch your focus, man. Watch your focus. Now, number two. This is for the ladies. Women, watch your words. Watch your words. Words have a weight to them, and they can tear down or they can build up. When a man hears the words of his wife, it weighs more heavily than what you think. It weighs more heavily than you think. The Bible says words fitly spoken are like apples of gold and settings of silver. But listen to to these women. Let this be a warning. This is Proverbs 27. A continual dripping on a very rainy day is a contentious woman, and a contentious woman are alike. How are they alike? A leaky roof leaves a home unprotected. A nagging wife leaves a marriage unprotected. Replace nagging words with kind words. Replace nagging words, contentious words, and use gracious words. Words. So watch it work in your marriage. Watch it work. 
Even look at Christ. Look at Christ in the New Testament. She said, people marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. Now, ladies, I hope that's not true of you. Whenever people marvel that you would say something nice about your husband, say, no way. She, She said, what? That doesn't sound like her. Don't let them marvel at nice things coming out of your mouth about your husband. But what a wonderful thing to marvel at gracious words proceeding out of your mouth saying, wow, she's just continually backing him up. She's continually encouraging him to keep going and to keep working and to keep fighting and to keep striving and to keep praising God. Now, it could be at this point, maybe before that, you've been working off a grid, any old grid, uh, where you maybe analyze, well, why did you just say that to your husband? Why did I say that? Because he deserved it. Because it's true. Because nobody else was going to say it to him. I had to say it to him. Yeah, but was it helpful? Does it fix a problem? Scripture tells us that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Well, I said it because he deserved it. Well, how's that working out for you? Running him down every time he makes a mistake. Pointing it out. Maybe you said it because it felt good for you to say it. You enjoyed saying it. You enjoyed venting. Perhaps in new grid. How can I say this kindly? Can I say the same message in a different way so that he can hear me more clearly? Is now the right time to say that? Think of the description, gracious words or the words of grace. You know what grace is. Of course, we all know what grace is. As believers, we know what grace is. It's undeserved, unmerited favor. So how about speaking undeserved words, gracious words? How about dishing some of that up at home? Okay, number three. I need to move on. I may not get to number four. Hopefully we do, but maybe not. Enjoy each other spiritually. Back in Proverbs 5.18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your Then Verse 21 says, for a man's ways are before the Lord, or before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his path. Keep spirituality in your marriage. Pray together, read together, talk about your quiet times together. It's hard when you've got kids to study together, but maybe it's possible to talk about that later on. Study apart, then come together, compare notes, if that's something that works for you. Uh, You've heard the old saying, a, a, a family that prays together stays together. Did you know that that's true? The research backs that up. It's the average American couple. There's different polls, but this one says that one out of every two marriages get divorced. But people who attend church regularly, their rate of divorce is much lower, and couples who pray together at home regularly goes way, way, way down again. Way down. So treat your wives like she's God's daughter because she is. Treat your husband like he's God's son because he is. Keep that spiritual core at the center. If you want to make your I do harder to undo, get that spiritual core. It's all about him. What would he have me do? What would God have me be? 
Who would God have me bring, or how would he have me bring glory and honor to him? How may I serve him? Because if you make your marriage all about, am I getting what I deserve? Am I getting my enjoyment? Am I, are enough people rotating themselves around me? You will be miserable. You'll be miserable if your marriage is all about me because God never designed your marriage to be about you. It's meant to be about that other person. It's meant to be about the glory of God. What does God want? That's his design. This is his idea. So if you're going to find your role, if you're going to submit to him in your role, then you have to stop making it about yourself and devote yourself to to him and fulfilling the covenant vows that you made before him to love them and to honor them and to treasure them and to enjoy them. Enjoy each other's company. Enjoy each other emotionally. Enjoy each other spiritually. Okay, we'll go for the last one. Enjoy each other sexually. Yes, the S word. Proverbs 5. The wife of your youth, verse 19. A lovely dear, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. I don't need to break that down. I don't want to break that down. But the idea is that sexual love between husband and wife is stunningly magical. Sex is good, yes. But the Bible says that illicit sex is like a fire out of the fireplace. It will hurt you, it will burn down your home and destroy your possessions and everything around you. But sex within marriage is a beautiful thing. Now, about the words always in verse 15. Okay, I don't have up there for some reason. Um, in Proverbs 5, verse 19, it says, uh, Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. What does that mean? I'm not going to get into that. But here's what it's saying, really, the bigger picture. When you put these other three pillars first, when you start focusing on each other's needs, when you start thinking about each other and cultivating that enjoyment with each other and that pleasure with being each other, that desire to want to see each other above and beyond anyone else, then when intimacy is easier and when it is more natural, when, jo- when it is joy-producing, it will reflect itself physically. And it is the outflowing of a joyous, harmonious, covenant, God-glorifying marriage. If you start with this pillar first, it cheapens everything else. And we talked a wee bit about that this morning. If your love is demanding and selfish, it will isolate her. It will weaken intimacy with her. Listen to Song Psalm 1 5. It's on the screen. I'll not take the time to read it all, but on, it's on the screen. Verse 10 to the end of the chapter, he's, she, she is complimenting and praising her husband. And at the end, the, it's, on, it's in the red. He is my Beloved, this is my friend. So yes, I'm physically attracted, but there's so much more to that. There's so much more to that relationship. What this does tell me, um, well, let's get to chapter 7. 
we get the reverse. The husband is complimenting the bride. This is after the fall. They've had their argument and there's been resolution. And it's very powerful imagery about rounded thighs and navels and breasts and all the rest of it. The point is that her husband loves her and loves her body. Now, he also says at the bottom that her, to- her nose is like a crooked tar. So, you know, you may want to be careful about just how much of this you want to quote to your wife on Valentine's Day or write in her birthday card. But what it does tell me is that while the Bible wants to show us that intimacy and desire should be there, it's also not for anyone else really to see. It's not for public display. It's not for to, to be flaunted in front of other people. God allows us to have a slight insight here, but it's veiled. It's veiled. It's careful. It's poetic. It's not crude. It's not graphic. It's not explicit. But rather, God veils this entire thing. You never get past the metaphors in Song of Solomon. You never get past the imagery in Proverbs. You never go beyond the analogies or the pictures. You don't have this one-to-one correspondence, but rather these general kind of, oh, you're like a tar and your hair's like goats and all the rest of it. So there's general, general analogies and feelings about something that's beautiful and something that's lovely and something that's flowing and moving and all of that. It's okay to quote the Bible to each other. Um, it says, write out of God's word, so never be afraid of Scripture. But listen, God has made every part of your body. He equipped you with a nervous system that responds to enjoyment at a physical level. You were created by God physiologically to be stimulated. God made his creation, and when he made it, he said it was good. It was good. But the fire burned hot and passionately within the fireplace of marriage. So you need to hear this. Can I get the last slide up there, guys? No. Sex within marriage is God-given, but it also must be God-guided. Must be God-guided. These are the guidelines for it. It is beautiful, and its beauty lies within the fact that it is private between a husband and wife. It's not for social media. It's not to be talked around coffee tables or discussed or bragged about or anything like that. But rather, it is a beautiful gift between a husband and a wife that is for them and for them alone. And so that's why maybe sometimes we get awkward about it. That's maybe sometimes why we get, we get shy about it, because we don't want to talk about it to other people. That's good. That's okay. But you have to be able to talk to each other because it binds us together. Now, I do need to stop here, but I could have went on to deal with the realities of the things that can impact and to steal our enjoyment, the world of fantasy and pornography that steals, seeks to steal and to destroy our enjoyment in each other. But listen, real life, real love is better than any fantasy. Do you remember... Esau, Esau um, sold his birthright cheaply for, for a bowl of red soup. His brother came in, was making something, and he says, oh, I'm so hungry. Give, give me that birthright. Or give me that soup, and I'll, I'll give you my birthright for, for some soup. And he, he gave away something that was uh, 
lifelong, something that was beautiful, something that was from God, something that was precious for instant gratification. And you regretted that mistake. There are so many people doing the same thing with love and with sex and with their marriages. And they're throwing away something lifelong and beautiful for a moment's pleasure. We must not be so foolish. But such is the dangers that are out there. But truthfully, when you spend time building each other up and building your enjoyment in each other, you will naturally filter out those things that seek to steal your joy and to steal your focus and steal your attention on something else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's not always